Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 132. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Matt, we're recording on a lovely Sunday here. What's up on your side? Not much. Just going to enjoy the sunshine later on and hopefully get some training in. There's nothing better when it's nice and beautiful and sunny outside than locking yourself in a closet and recording a podcast remotely, right? That's <laughs> literally the best thing to do. That's right. I bought a uh, the Base Blocks workout platform. I don't know if anyone's heard of that. They they did endorse Gordon Ryan a few years ago before he got super rich. And now they're <laughs> now they're endorsing a GSP. Yeah, I saw the ad for that. What exactly is it? Because I'm I mean, I'm, I've been kind of been locked in this house for like a year plus now. So I'm always looking for ways I can actually get some degree of exercise. What are we what are we talking about here? What is this thing? Uh, basically, it's an overpriced piece of wood with two metal rods sticking out of it. But <laughs> I got the classic one, which is like it's literally two metal rods that are adjustable that stick out of a wooden platform. And then there's kind of like wooden grips on top and you can do dips. You can do gymnastic like workouts, leg raises and rows and presses and stabilization exercises. It's actually pretty awesome because every every exercise you do stabilizes your core, your shoulders and increases grip strength and forearm strength. So it's like it's a really great jujitsu workout, especially for upper body. But you can also do balance stuff. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really fun. It's not cheap. I found a promo code and it cost me like 170 American. Holy materials. crap, 170 American. Yeah. yeah. That's like $2,000 Canadian. <laughs> but yeah, it's not cheap. It probably costs like 30 bucks to make if that. The price of lumber is going up right now. Okay, base blocks. But yeah, it's a it's a it is a good workout. They have a new one. The one that GSP is promoting is more just like a pull up bar. And yeah, mm. I'm so stupid. I was tempted to get it as well, but I you really don't need it. But it is it's good. I I'm enjoying the workouts a lot. You can get a lot done in a short amount of time. So I saw Daniel Strauss using this thing. It looked like a divining rod or something like one of those like weird sticks that people use to find water and it's like he was using it to do push-ups but there was only one point of contact on the ground and that thing looks like a mean workout i was actually mm. wondering maybe i should get something like that because the the challenge i find is most of the exercises i've been doing now have not been arm related they've been chest related and leg related so basically after a year of this i'm built like a refrigerator at this point and i probably should do something to develop arm strength <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, there's all sorts of cool little devices out there. But, man, I'm always blown away by how expensive these things wind up being. Oh, yeah. Like, basically, you're paying for a piece of molded plastic or molded metal or something. And 
the amount that it actually costs is just absolutely preposterous. Maybe that's what we need to do is we need to like make BJJ mental models, conceptual work, workout gear where you get a concept workout. Like you don't actually do any workout. Yeah. It's just, but we still sell the thing for like 300 bucks. That's a good idea. Huh? Yeah. I was going to say, we don't even sell anything. It's just the concept of a thing. <laughs> yeah. And we just collect money. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're some, one of those Pakistani manufacturers who's always spamming us, shoot me your idea <laughs> pitch for how, how we could mm. build conceptual workout gear. Anyway, on the topic Greetings, of- ma'am or sir. <laughs> dear, dear sir or madam, we, yeah. we are a Pakistani lead elite MMA gear fight clothing provider. Would honor if provide you with sample sent to you free of charge. Please respond post haste. Sincerely, Elite World MMA Grappling Apparel TM or something like that. Yeah, I love getting those. <laughs> It's funny. I remember the first time I got one of those, I actually was kind of flattered. I was like, wow, someone, someone actually wants to partner with this like podunk little podcast. But now after like the thousandth one that you get, you're like, oh, fuck another one of these guys. It makes you wonder how many of these like Pakistani ghee outlets are there? It must be this huge business. I want to believe that if you oh, go yeah. over there, like every second business is a ghee manufacturing place. For sure, yeah. Anyways, there's lots of them. Yep. I recently put an order through to Pakistan for some on-guard gear. And like when you put it through, the way that this guy gets me to pay is through bank wire, which is kind of like a primitive way to send mm-hmm. funds. And <laughs> every time you do it, there's a there's like a a warning that this is this is not necessarily a safe country to send money to. Yeah. Are you sure you want to proceed? And I'm like, oh God, this is a risk every time. But <laughs> That's apparently that's what happens when you send a bank wire to Pakistan. Yeah, I I do have to say, though, like, I mean, if you do your diligence, you can actually get some decent quality gear from some of those manufacturers. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's not ruling them out completely. Anyway, in the last time we chatted, Matt, we talked about frames and I thought it was a great chat. I mean, who would have thought you could talk for an hour about frame related concepts? And that kind of got me thinking. There's a lot of these things in jujitsu that we just take for granted everyone understands. I mean, I know something that you and Rob talk about a lot is the idea of base and how every instructor always says, oh, just get your base, you know, stand in base. But no one actually ever bothers to define what base really means. And if you were to take the time to do that, you could talk for like an hour easily about this concept that we all take for granted. Mm -hmm. And in the last chat we had, we had a what I thought was a really great detailed conversation about frames. And one of the things that we decided on was that really frames and wedges are actually not that different. They're kind of two sides to the same coin, right? The main difference is a frame is something that you primarily use for defense. And usually you're trying to use your frame to make space. Whereas a wedge is something that you primarily use for offense. And normally you're creating wedges to take away space, right? So kind of the same thing. In both pieces, you're using a part of your body to kind of block off or pry at your opponent, but the purpose is totally different depending on whether you're on the attack or whether you're on the defense. So with that said, I thought as a good counterweight to that last episode we did about frames, we could have a probably a pretty great conversation about wedges and exactly what that means when we talk about creating wedges in jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, usually when I think of, you're definitely right that wedges and frames do, there is crossover between the two mechanisms. There's times when in jujitsu, you would, you would look at, uh, you know, a frame or a wedge and say, oh, you could call this a frame or a wedge. But also that, you know, as frames are being used to generally create space in a defensive setting, as you said, 
a lot of the time wedges are used to immobilize and take away movement. And of course, when you're doing things like pinning or joint locks or controlling positions, you're going to need wedges. And that is definitely one of the main mechanisms that we use in jujitsu every day. I can remember when I was basically all the way up till brown belt, my, you know, I was in my twenties and Basically, in the phase of my journey where I'm ignoring fundamentals and ignoring shit that actually works at the highest level and stuff that's timeless, I was going upside down and just just playing around and playing with my game and using using things like strength and speed. And, uh, you know, it did catch up to me a little bit. I got some injuries and now I'm 33. So I'm like, man, I want to just I want to start taking away movement rather than creating all these scrambles. You know, it's just it's better for longevity. You don't have to work as hard. I I could argue that it's more efficient jujitsu. It will work at a highest level. And so, you know, in the last two years, I've really focused my my game on the idea of how wedges can take away movement from my opponent. And like the results have been crazy. And just uh, now I feel like when I'm trying to pass with pressure and pin you know, I didn't really understand what people meant when they said pressure before, you know, because like you said, instructors can say, oh, be heavy or base out or use pressure or whatever. But really, they're not explaining to you what that means. And generally what that means is, you know, wedges around your opponent's body on the inside position and reinforced by body weight. And a lot of the time, the way that you're basing out with your hands, feet, and especially your head position has a huge role to play it as well. So yeah, definitely ever since ever since I've really adopted the idea of wedges, not only are my roles slower and more controlled, but more exhausting for my opponent and more beneficial for me in terms of my cardio. So let's have a good chat about wedges. Really awesome way to describe it. And I think it's important to do this because I remember when I first started getting exposed to the Island Top Team system, right? I mean, you guys talk a lot about things like frames. Well, frames, everyone knows what a frame is, right? Maybe you haven't thought as in-depth about frames as we did in our last chat, you know, but everyone knows what they are, right? If you are, you know, a day one white belt, your instructor is going to tell you what a frame is. And at some point, you know, you might not have ever really dug deep into exactly the concepts behind them. But if your instructor tells you frame, you have at least an inkling of what that would mean. Whereas wedges is terminology that people might not be as familiar with when you compare it to frames. Not every gym currently uses this language, although they probably should, right? It's just very standard language when it comes to just mechanics. So I guess we can talk a little bit about what a, a wedge is right now. Of, of course, we are not talking about Wedge, the character from Final Fantasy Remake, as much as I would love to just... Re- Although we should. We absolutely should ramble on about him for an hour. He is just... You know, my my body type is gradually turning into his after like a year plus of being <laughs> off the mats. But when we talk about- Voice played by Badger in Breaking Bad in the Final Fantasy VII remake. I see. I had no idea. It's God that I know. I, I, hey, you, don't, you don't watch that show. Fuck you. No, you I, I know that is that is one of those things that is massively embarrassing. I have I have not seen Breaking Bad and it's not that I don't want to. I fully understand it's perhaps one of the greatest shows ever made. It's just, I feel like to get into a show like that, you got to have a, a lot of time and you have to be in a certain mindset. And I've just, I haven't really had that moment where one day I sit down and I'm just like, I want to binge Breaking Bad. But one day I will. I am, I'm not disputing the greatness of that show. Anyway. And then they, they did a sequel movie. I guess, I think it's called uh, El Torino or something like that. They like low key released a, a sequel to it. 
I don't really think it was that successful, honestly, for such a for such a big show. Uh, yeah. I was kind of surprised at the lackluster, you know, promotion of that show. But anyways, we should probably talk about jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> so, on a tangent. Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about wedges, there's kind of two different types of wedges that I can think of. I mean, originally I thought of a wedge kind of like a doorstop where you're trying to prohibit your opponent's movement. But after putting this idea out there, I got some feedback from some of our listeners who mentioned that there's actually, if you think about it, there's two different types of wedges, right? One type of wedge is what we could call a blocking wedge, which is like a doorstop, right? You're using something, in the case of jujitsu, you're using a part of your body to prevent your opponent from moving much like a doorstop would prevent a door from moving, right? But there's also this other type of wedge, which we could call a prying wedge, where you're using a, a part of your body to pry something open, like a crowbar or a can opener, right? That That is also a wedge. And an example of that in the case of jujitsu would be like the knee cut pass, right? You're basically using your knee as a giant wedge to pry open your opponent's guard. You can also do similar things if you're fighting to get under their neck in a lot of situations, right? You can use parts of your body to pry their head to the side, to pry open access to their neck. In a lot of ways, that that is a type of wedge, much in the sense that a, a can opener or a crowbar would be a type of wedge. So generally, two different types of wedges. There's the idea of a blocking wedge and the idea of a prying wedge, both of which you would primarily use on the offense. But really, the, the type that is kind of most interesting in most contexts is the idea of a blocking wedge, which is basically, hey, I'm on the offense. I'm trying to attack my opponent and I'm using pieces of my body to immobilize my opponent so that they can't get out, right? So much of jujitsu is about immobilizing your opponent while you advance position. And really it is wedges that do that. And wedges on the offense are just as important as frames on the defense. Absolutely. And when we talk about wedges, whether you're referring to offensive or defensive position, whether you're in top or bottom position, the idea is to gain the inside position. And essentially, that's what a wedge is when we're talking about pinning. You know, my eyes were open to this when I started really studying uh, pressure half guard passing. And I realized like, oh, everything revolves around getting an inside position, getting an underhook, pummeling your foot inside. And that's really what the Danaher guys are doing is they're just when they're passing and body locking. They're always stealing the inside position. And that's why we never see guys like Gordon get pinned down. At least never, like very rarely do we see him get pinned down. And why, you know, even early in his journey, he would literally pull mount or pull side control because he was so confident that he understood how to escape pinning positions. And right now I am studying Danaher's dynamic pinning escapes, you know, really going back to basics. And <laughs> this man can spend... 40 minutes discussing how to do a shrimp. It's pretty intense. But uh, even from a defensive position, you know, if, if uh, Gordon just released his do not pass DVD and all of it has to do with maintaining the inside position. And once you really buy into that idea, your jujitsu just gets so much better. You, it's I find it so much easier to retain guard when I just focus on the idea of always having the inside position, especially as a guy who's not very big. I'm literally there might be two people smaller than me at my gym. Everyone else is, you know, over 200 pounds. Like it pays to understand how to not get crushed. And a big part of that is always playing the inside position and getting inside your opponent's wedges, which is one of the main goals that you have when you're trying to escape top pinning positions. So 
Yeah, by by understanding how to use wedges offensively, you can pin your opponent and really climb your way up past their legs to control the head and their shoulders. And then defensively, you can use the inside position to prevent your opponent from pinning you, immobilizing you, and you can always have some movement and always have some game from the bottom. Absolutely. And it's worth noting that wedges can be used in a few different ways, right? I mean, probably a very obvious example is if I'm like on top of you in side control and I'm, you know, I'm driving my shoulder into your face to force you to turn away, to pin your head and your body in a position where you can't look at me, that's a wedge, right? I'm using my shoulder as a wedge. Similarly, if I'm trying to armbar you, right, when we try to control the far side when you're armbarring, right, you know, you can either pinch the the far shoulder with your ankles or you can cross your ankles. You're using a wedge. That's a wedge. You're, you're immobilizing your opponent so that they can't move. But it's also possible to use wedges not just to, you know, create doorstops around your opponent, which would prevent their body from moving, but you can also create wedges that lock parts of your opponent's body in a way that their skeleton doesn't work the way that they want. So an example I give, and you talked earlier about pressure passing. When I first saw the whole pressure passing game, I thought like, this is a game for like big, strong, juicy, like roided up bullies. But actually it's really not, right? That's a misconception. Pressure passing is not actually so much about weight. I mean, in the the pre-pandemic times, I was definitely one of the smaller guys in the gym, right? And I started adopting pressure passing and having a massive success with it, even against guys who were probably outweighing me by close to 100 pounds, because it's not about weight or strength. It's about forcing your opponent into these weird compromised positions and then making them burn tons of energy trying to get out of it without any success. So one thing that you can do, like if you're trying to pressure pass someone, you can use your knees, for example, as wedges on the inside of their legs to lock their hips. That's a great use of wedges, right? You lock people's hips in an open position and then they can't really move from the guard. It takes away their movement. So wedges doesn't necessarily mean you're putting doorstops all around your opponent's body to kind of like cage them in. It could also mean you're forcing your opponent's body into a weird, unathletic position where they just actually can't like open and close their arms or their legs the way they want. They can't move their hips or their shoulders the way that they want. And that does not, it does not always require that you put like part of your body onto the floor. Sometimes you can do it in midair just by creating a locking system where your opponent cannot move. Yeah, if for anyone who saw the fights last night, I don't know when this episode's going to get released, but you <laughs> Probably UFC... sometime in 2024 at this point. <laughs> <laughs> What was it? UFC 262, something like that. It was, I'm blanking on the main event now. Oh, it was Oliveira versus Chandler. That was an amazing fight. And then the co-main was Tony Ferguson versus Benil Dariush, I believe his name is. And uh, I'm only now kind of reinvigorating myself with MMA. I, I took a few years off watching it. I just wasn't interested in it. But now the fights are getting so good that I just, I don't know, I cannot watch it. And Benil Dariush had a inside heel hook on Ferguson last night. And Ferguson was like basically refusing to tap, but not really offering any defense as well. And instantly I had like maybe 10 people message me like, did you see that heel hook? How come he couldn't finish it? It looked like Ferguson's, uh, it looked like his leg was, you know, going to break or whatever. Oh, it definitely popped and all of a sudden he probably did take some damage. But the truth is, is that I don't think Benil had the breaking mechanics to actually fully break Tony's leg even though I'm sure he did cause some damage. And I actually could do a video breakdown of this, but the main mistakes I saw were 
Number one, Benil, his elbow positioning was off. He started to pull the heel across the center. And so what that does is it prevents you from really putting strong wedges on the toes. And what he really should have done is stayed, almost go belly down and jammed his elbow into his hip and closed the space between his elbow and his hip as he was heel hooking instead of opening his elbow and allowing Ferguson's leg to straighten out. And what closing the elbow does is it it puts a wedge on the top of the foot and immobilizes the toes and creates a really, really perpendicular leg to break, which is much more powerful when you're using rotational ratchet-based submissions such as heel hooks and kimuras and stuff like that. So that was one thing he was missing was his elbow position came off. And then the other thing he was doing was his legs were uncrossed. And I know that Ferguson at one point was kicking Darius's, I believe I'm saying his name right, Darius's one of his legs away, opening the wedges and sort of relieving some pressure. But Benil also didn't try to close the wedges again. And so my point being is when we're finishing joint locks, generally, if you cross your ankles, especially for leg locks, crossing your ankles will generate a lot more breaking pressure than open wedges. And that's just because it sort of unites the power of your hips and you can really create strong breaking power when it, when your feet are uncrossed it's it's a little bit trickier to get those those full on breaks right so that was something that i noticed last night too i was like man if he just had those closed wedges like he very well could have broken that leg but ferguson fought on albeit he got his he got his ass kicked the whole fight he, i mean he got out grappled everywhere but that was one part where i was like man those finishing mechanics were you know, a a little bit off. And it was because he wasn't closing up his wedges. Yeah. You're basically talking about creating a closed circuit, right? As opposed to having like an open circuit where your opponent has more ability Mm -hmm. to move around. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Anytime. I mean, there are, there are exceptions to joint, joint locks where your feet can be open. Like for example, sometimes when you arm bar someone from the bottom position or even certain ankle locks, I, I rarely lock my feet. But generally in those ankle locks, the reason I don't lock my feet is because usually my feet are in a position where I can use them to create frames and create space so that there's a greater degree of breaking power. Like one of my favorite ankle locks is the the Mikey Musumeki one where you have the inside hook rather than the, the standard ashy. And because that inside hook is in place, it's so difficult for your opponent to stand and control your upper body and prevent you from just ripping it off because you can you can create such good space so instead of actually creating a closed wedge and clamping down on the hip you are doing a form of extension so it's again it's it's a frame but it's it's also a wedge right so again the term can be used interchangeably in many scenarios yeah, yeah. I I mean, I, I am not a, a footlock guy by any stretch, as you know, but I do agree that there's something that just gives you a bit more control if you're able to close the circuit or at least put wedges so that your opponent can't move. Like if I'm in standard ashy and I'm trying to go for a standard straight ankle lock, I mean, I think we all know that's a very very hard submission to actually finish against a good guy because in the classical standard ashy ankle lock your legs are not like your feet are not really touching each other right the connection is kind of weak so your opponent can do things like they can do that escape where they put on the boot and they like hop over the leg or they can get Mm -hmm. up or they can roll but one of the things that i actually love and i actually have to be careful doing this technique because it is so damaging is the belly down ankle lock right where i go for like standard ashy and then I roll over so I'm I'm like belly down on top of the guy and 
then now my whole body basically is like a wedge pinning the guy's leg and putting a twist on it. And I find if you do that, like it totally changes the game with the standard ankle lock. It suddenly goes from this position that kind of is a little bit, you know, disparaged to suddenly becoming like a really, really actually dangerous position. You got to be careful if you're doing that because it really actually puts a lot of torque on the person's ankle. And what you're really doing is you're just using your body to make wedges and it prevents the openness of the standard ankle lock that you often get where you're, you know, you're in that standard ashy position. Yeah. I'd love, I'd love to do a video on the ankle lock that I do, which is concepts that I've learned from Bernanke. And of course, watching Mikey Misameki, I basically have given up on the standard ashy ankle lock. Mm -hmm. It is so defendable. It's so easy for your opponent to stand, stand up. It's easy for your opponent to uh, break your wedges and hop over your leg. But oddly enough, that actually funnels you into the attack that I'm more of a fan of, which is pummeling the outside foot on the hip to the inside thigh. And that that really is a hard position to break because now the other foot can come over top and stomp. So definitely going to be making a breakdown of that technique because one thing about ankle locks is that, you know, I think traditionally the, just the way that they've been taught and the the way that leg lock mechanics were lacking when I was starting out we were generally taught ankle locks are bullshit <laughs> and won't won't work right like it's it's a move that won't work on good guys but that is so far from the truth ankle locks are fucking devastating they are especially if you're used to heel hooks and you get really good at defending heel hooks. And then all of a sudden someone throws an ankle lock on you. It's completely different defense. And you're just like, oh shit. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can totally get caught that way. And ankle locks are really, really deadly. If you can do them properly. Yeah. A lot of the reason why they're much better now is because of the idea of, of wedges and how, how you're wedging someone's leg actually affects the breaking mechanics of the submission. Whereas before, I believe it was more of like a, kind of like a grip and rip sort of thing. And if the yeah. guy can, you know, if it, you're not really going to break his foot, there's a chance you could break his foot, but if he's tough, he's just going to eat it, right? Yeah, I recall this too. I mean, I'm old enough to remember that when we started training, ankle locks were considered like a, you know, a submission that no good person would ever tap to because it's just about pain. But that is so far from the truth, right? Now, if you do ankle locks without any control, Sure, that might be true, right? Like if I just, like you said, if I just like grip and rip, if I if I have no control over the person's body and I can't prevent them from spinning or getting up and my goal is just to to rip as hard as I can and hope I can break it before my opponent taps, I mean, sure, that's low percentage. That's probably not going to work against a good guy unless you just get incredibly lucky. But if you know what you're doing and you actually create control structures ankle locks are extraordinarily powerful. Like one of my favorite things to do is to roll with people who insist I'd never tap to a straight ankle lock and then make them tap to a straight ankle lock because it is, it is such a powerful position. And the nice thing about it is there's a lot of things in the straight ankle lock game that chain into more traditional jujitsu, right? I mean, so much of like the heel hook game ties into the modern leg lock system. Whereas with straight ankle locks, that standard ashy position is very easy to transition into things like single leg X guard or leg drags. So you wind up in a situation where if you are, if you want to go for more traditional, like top side attacks in jujitsu, like go to mount, go to side control, go to, you know, go for arm bars and stuff. The straight ankle lock is a great threat to, to get there. And I guess one thing that we're really talking about here, when we're talking about the big change in mindset about why this stuff works is 
there used to be this perception, again, that straight ankle locks and a lot of submissions like that were about damage, not about control. And damage-based submissions, I mean, they can work, but they're not really reliable because if you screw it up, you've lost control of the situation, right? The main change in the way that people approach, honestly, the entire leg lock system now is it's not about damage, it's about control. And one of the main ways that you get that control is with wedges, right? You create wedges all over the place so that your opponent cannot do things like roll, cannot do things like stand up. If your opponent is able to to roll or to stand up or otherwise escape these things, then that doesn't mean that your your submissions aren't going to work. It just means that you don't have enough control to keep them where you want them to be. So that's where wedges really come in handy, right? An example that kind of falls into the more traditional jujitsu landscape, and I know we've talked about this in the past, Matt, is the idea of double trouble. So one of the important things to understand if you want to go for a submission like an arm bar is that just pulling on the arm is not going to get you the submission in most cases, unless you just do such a huge amount of damage that you can get the break before your opponent is able to escape. The trick to successful arm bars is to create a wedge on the far side. And it took me a long time to realize this, but once I figured it out, suddenly I was able to answer the question as to why I'm never getting arm bars on good people. When I am trying to set up an arm bar now, my focus is not just on grabbing and pulling on the arm I'm attacking. It is making a wedge on the far side arm, which could be by pinching with my feet. It could be by crossing my ankles against the, the far side arm. Or if I mount it on them, I can just use my hands to pull up on their tricep. And this is one of the weird things uh, that I found when going for a lot of these submissions, right? Is if you want to attack the near side limb, one of the best things that you can actually do is use wedges to immobilize the far side limb. Yeah, absolutely. I want I wanted to just touch on what you said about your take on leg locks. I, I think there's athletes out there who do have that mindset where it's more about control than actual damage. I mean, I think realistically, if you if you have a good foundational jujitsu game, it is based around control that leads to damage. Yeah, to clarify, that's what I'm saying, which is that the good leg lockers playing the modern game, they want control before damage. It's more sure. kind of like old school guys who try to just inflict damage before they even have locked up the control. That's the thing that I, I would sort of generally advise against doing. Yeah, I think that if you if you're not trying to inflict damage when you're going for leg locks, it's probably because you don't have the confidence to use the mechanics that would actually genuinely break someone. And that's why it's just a never ending journey for the best mechanics. Like, you know, what I think is the best mechanics today could very well change six months down the line. You know, you find a detail, you're like, oh my God, that sort of changes everything, right? I think a very good way to use leg locks is to use it for control. Like you said, transitioning to the back and using it to guard pass, using it in tandem with guard passing and your leg lock entries. But definitely if you don't have a strong sense of, I can actually inflict damage upon my opponent, you're probably not a great leg locker. You know, I mean, tell, tell any of these guys from Danaher's camp that the goal is not to inflict damage. They're going to laugh at you. Right. But there is definitely truth behind the aspect of control and using wedges to control. And I like how you used the example of an arm bar. Basically, now when I go to an arm bar, my mindset has changed. You know, be before I'd go for arm bar and I'd be like, OK, I'm either going to get this or I'm just going to 
whatever happens after this happens and I'm going to react. Whereas now I'm like, okay, I'm going to go into an arm bar by way of a Kimura grip because I know that it creates more control. And then I know upon my opponent's defenses, I'm going to look for my opportunity to enter into a triangle and using those three systems, you know, as as a trilemma. And then once you get a triangle throwing on like a, a wrist lock, I mean, you have like multiple dilemmas there going on and it's all based around the idea of control you know using those critical control points multiple systems that can just corner your opponent so that they don't have any options left so very rarely do i think just about inflicting damage solely as if i'm going to land that perfect arm bar but it's it is more about especially as you go against higher level opponents you're going to get higher level defenses and reactions and you're going to have to keep chasing your opponent down these defenses until you find something and that's why, for example, switching from an arm bar to a triangle, I think, is such a strong strategy because you the control that you gain out of that, it allows you to enjoy the offense for longer periods of time. And then eventually, hopefully, you can dial in uh, a submission. And on that note, too, it's also worth mentioning that even if you're on the bottom, if you're on the attack you can still use wedges, right? Wedges don't necessarily have to be something that you do from the top side. I mean, they often are because it's so easy to create wedges using the floor. But in the example you gave, if I'm trying to triangle somebody, like the proper choking mechanics of jujitsu require you to have basically a stopper against each carotid artery. And then you put another wedge behind the back of their head and you pull down, right? I mean, something that Rob has talked about is that if you want to apply a a traditional blood choke, think of like a triangle around your opponent's neck, right? Where you've got like a diagonal against one carotid, a diagonal against another, and you've got like a, a flat wedge against the third side of the triangle is like a flat wedge against the back of their neck. And the goal is you use that to like use that top thing to push down and to basically push their neck into the wedges against their neck. So it's another example of where even if you're on the bottom, I mean, you're using wedges when you're on the attack, right? And that's how a lot of good submission mechanics work. It's not just that you you grab and you pull. It's that you set up wedges to constrict around the piece of the body that you're attacking. And it's not just the case for chokes, right? It's also the case for joint locks. We've talked before about this, this concept that Rob talks about and how, you know, if I'm, for example, trying to put pressure on your elbow breaking pressure if i haven't immobilized your other joints then that pressure can bleed through right and your your for example your rotator your shoulder can compensate so if i'm not locking your shoulder and i'm just ripping onto your elbow you can adjust your body so that that pressure gets distributed more evenly and your elbow might wind up just being fine but if I use wedges to fully immobilize you so that your shoulder is locked as well, then suddenly it's much more easy for me to put breaking pressure onto your elbow. So really, wedges are key to pretty much any single submission, right? It's if you don't have proper wedges, then your chokes and your joint locks, they're just going to be too loose and there's going to be too much opportunity for your opponent to wiggle out of the pressure and ultimately to escape as well. For sure. I mean, all basically all forms of control, all forms of submission involve wedges. And that's just a fact. I can't think of one submission or position that you want to enjoy for long periods of time that don't involve the use of wedges. And I think of back to when, you know, maybe I was a blue belt and I would say the majority of the jujitsu in the area was probably gi. And I would remember people would tell me, 
oh, I find it so much easier to pass in the gi. You know, no gi is so slippery. It's so hard to to gain any kind of control or whatever. And I remember hearing that as a blue belt and being like, yeah, I, that makes sense. I can think of that. And now I've actually, I almost think the opposite. I almost think that the opposite is true because there's so many ways to get tied up in, in the gi, especially against a really good guard player that a lot of the time it can be difficult to even get to a chest to chest position. If someone's like a really fantastic open guard player. And the way that I look at passing no gi has totally changed now because Yes, it's true. It is slipperier and you don't have any fabric to grab. But at the same time, if if you understand the idea of punching underhooks and getting inside position, it actually is, for me, a lot easier to pass a nogi. I, f- I find passing a nogi is easy because your opponent can't really create sustainable grips on you from the bottom for long periods of time. And yeah, it all comes from the idea of gaining inside position and creating wedges around your opponent's body. And so their counter game must be to gain the inside position back inside your wedges and, you know, implement off balancing strategies from there. And so that is, that's why I find now when I, when I'm doing nogi grappling, it's like, this is not slippery at all. This is actually sticky because I understand how to get to inside position. It's not that I'm trying to like make grips necessarily from the bottom you do have to create off balance you do have to there is a whole grip fighting game that happens there but when you're pinning from the top what a pin really is 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 getting inside position and then reinforcing with body weight and that is something that i wish i was taught a lot earlier (laughs) because it would make my life a lot easier if you just have weight on your opponent with no inside position they're going to put you in guard right away they're going to you know get right underneath you and do whatever they want yeah, I am with you on that. I feel like when I am trying to pass someone's guard in the gi, and I mean, you know, I train primarily in the gi, it's so dangerous because there's just so much fabric to grab onto. There's so many handles that the guy on the bottom can use. When you're playing no gi, I find it's actually comparatively easy to set up passes because you're just not likely to get entangled in the same way. If you're fighting in the gi and you're trying to pass someone's guard, they can take your lapel and wrap it around your body or do things with your sleeve or your collar or your pant leg. And in a lot of those cases, they can actually use them to create wedges while you're standing, right? And an example is like, if I grab your lapel and I wrap it behind you around your leg and I pull, that pulling pressure is actually creating like a wedge on the far side, which is locking you in position even while you're standing up. And it's very hard to do that in Nogi, right? If I'm on the bottom in Nogi, my strategy has to be to own one of your levers. I've got to find a way to own your leg or own your arm, or if you come down low enough to even get your neck. In the gi, I have way more options. Like if your lapel is available, I can just wrap it around your body somehow and pull. And that tightness acts like a wedge, even though you're standing up. And it's just so easy to entangle people when they're standing up and trying to pass your guard in the gi. So I I am with you that I think actually passing in the gi can be quite challenging just due to how many options on the bottom the person has. Yeah, I've always, I remember maybe a year ago, I was studying the lapel encyclopedia from Keenan and thinking to myself, like, where in the mechanics hierarchy that we currently have of, you know, levers, fulcrum, wedges, clamps, frames, etc. Where do lapels fit into that? Where does the, like a proxy based control in the gi, where does that fit in? And I, it's kind of like a 
malleable combination of different things. I mean, you can use the lapel as a wedge. If you pass the lapel through your opponent's legs, the only way that they can break through the lapel is to break their grip, which is not easy, or depending on your configuration, they could possibly do like a high step out of it. And other than that, I mean, it's a pretty damn effective wedge around a portion of your opponent's body. And a lot of the time that'll prevent them from basing out or running away, you know, prevent them from getting swept. So lapels are kind of, I don't want to say an uncharted territory because they've certainly been charted over, you know, the last few years, a lot of players are starting to use the lapel stuff, but is a lapel a wedge? I mean, it's like I said, it's kind of fluid and and can be used in a lot of different ways. I mean, it's hard to deny that it isn't a wedge. Yeah, I would say that it can be, I mean, the thing about lapels that makes it hard is it can be kind of whatever you want it to be, right? When you're just looking at raw body mechanics, you kind of only have like six things that you can latch onto, right? You got two arms, you got two legs, you got the torso and you got the head. You really have a, a pretty limited number of attacks. And even then, jujitsu becomes incredibly complicated. Once you introduce the fabric, now there's all sorts of weird handles that can just be created out of thin air that actually don't really have anything to do with the human body. It's just the way that you you tie it up. This is, I mean, you got into this earlier, but this is the discussion of direct versus proxy control, right? Where direct control is I just grab your body directly, like I lock onto your leg, your arm, your neck. Proxy control is where I'm not actually grabbing onto your body directly, but I'm grabbing onto, I'm like tying you up in your own clothes and I'm grabbing onto something secondary like your lapel or your collar or your pant fabric or your sleeve fabric. And really what you're trying to do, I mean, it's not as obvious because there's so many other weird things that can happen, but I think the same mechanics of frames and wedges and such still apply. I mean, if you think about it, like spider guard, when you're grabbing the sleeve that you're basically creating frames against the arms, right? There's some types of lapel guard that you can do. I know that, you know, my instructor does it where you grab the lapel and you put your foot on the lapel. Like that's a frame. You're, you're pushing your opponent away. And I would say that if you're doing a lot of the stuff where you are taking the person's lapel and you're trying to like weave it between their legs, a big part of what you're trying to do is you're using the lapel to create a wedge, right? You're using it to restrict the motion of their leg mm -hmm. so that they can't move their leg. Just the main difference is you're doing it from the bottom, right? You're normally when we think of wedges, we think of things that are going to work when you're on top because wedges usually involve the floor, right? Like think of a doorstop, right? A doorstop works because it's, it's against the floor. A doorstop floating in thin air will not be that useful. But in the case of the gi, where if you are trying to go for like, you know, what you've called the dental cloth, where you grab the lapel and you pull it behind mm -hmm. your legs, or if you go 90s for, worm guard. Yeah. Or if you go for, you know, worm guard or some of those things, basically you're using the tug on the lapel to immobilize their hips and their legs so that they, they can't get them free. So you are creating a, a proxy wedge by pulling that fabric so tight that they can't actually move away from you. That's that's basically what you're doing. So I think the concept of wedges still applies. It's just, it's weird because you're not doing it necessarily from the top anymore. You can now actually do it from the bottom if you use the fabric. Lapels have such an interesting quality to them because yes, they do. For example, if you have the worm guard or the 90s worm guard or the dental cloth or whatever you want to call that sit up position with the lapel through the legs, it, it essentially is, it applies an incredibly strong single leg, but you only need to use one of your hands. So the gi can amplify 
what you want to do. And that, that really is the strength of the gi in a nutshell is it can amplify attacks when used correctly. And in this case, if you pass the lapel through the legs and you have a grip behind your opponent's butt, it's like you're coming up on a single, but you have a free hand because the other hand can be used to base out and off balance. And the lapel is tethered essentially to your opponent's head, right? So not only does it create rotational controls, but it also breaks posture as well. And yeah, I mean, I think I, I think using lapels in jujitsu is, you know, if you have it, you might as well use it. But it's hard to deny that it's uh that it isn't a form of wedging. And really what when we talk about wedging, what is wedging? It's just it's a mechanism used to immobilize. And that can mean so many different things. That could be applying a submission or pinning or even reclaiming inside position. You could use wedges. Yeah, that's my rant on wedges. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. You know, something that Josh Waitskin talks about in The Art of Learning, he he has this idea where he says that, you know, whenever you can use one of your limbs to immobilize two of your opponents, you're kicking ass. Like that's always a great thing to do if you can if you can make it happen. In jujitsu in nogi, it's I mean, I kind of struggle to think of examples of where you can do that, where you can use like one arm to trap two levers. It's kind of hard to do in nogi, but in the gi, there's a lot of ways to do it, right? And it, they generally involve wrapping your opponent's lapel around them in some weird exotic way, right? Like if I take your lapel and I wrap it behind your back, you know, I, I can get into situations where I can like immobilize one of your arms and your head with just one grip. And then my other hand is freed up to do all sorts of other attacks, right? So it's one of the cool things about the gi is that you can get these really overpowered wedges. Uh, and that's, I think, part of why the gi is so sophisticated and challenging for a lot of people, right? It's very easy to get tied up because with just one of my arms, I can like wedge against two of your different weapons. And, and that actually can be very dangerous if you're the guy on the, on the defense. So something else I want to get into briefly here, we've talked so far about what I would call blocking wedges, which is you're using wedges to try to immobilize your opponent. But there's also this notion of a prying wedge, which is where you use part of your body kind of like a crowbar to bust through your opponent's defenses. You know, one example I can think of is like a knee cut pass, right? I'm basically using my knee as a giant wedge to pry open your guard so I can get my whole body through. You know, other examples that I could think of would involve where I am, you know, using my hand or my forearm to try to pry under your jaw to get at your throat, right? There's a lot of different ways that you can do that. I'm wondering if you have any insights or considerations when it comes to using these kinds of prying wedges in jujitsu. Yeah, I mean, a knee cut pass kind of reminds me of a prying wedge, you know, driving your knee through that space between your opponent's hip and elbow. That is definitely an example where you would use a prying wedge or a sharp point to occupy a space. And yeah, from there, that's basically what the knee cut pass is in a, in a nutshell. Or if, for example, if you have double trouble on your opponent in the saddle and they're crossing their ankles. Anytime you're going to look for separation and then heel exposure, you basically have to bring your elbow to the inside position between their legs. And a lot of the time you can use your elbow as a wedge to pry their legs open and uh, it'll be up to them to try and re-pummel their free leg back inside to hide their heel. So that exists everywhere in jiu-jitsu for sure. All the time we're prying prying things open with our with our hands with our knees with our elbows and yeah for sure definitely a good use of wedge 
even with the head, right? I mean, oh, for sure. Yeah, if I'm going for like a choke on mount, a lot of the time I use my head to basically as a wedge to pry open access to my opponent's jaw. It doesn't win me a lot of friends, especially because I have a shaved head. So it's like sandpaper against their face. But the benefit to doing that is now I've, I still have both my hands free so I can base, I can attack, I can do whatever I want. Whereas if I'm trying to use my hands to pry open access to your jaw, then I just have less weapons engaged, right? So even the head can be a, a wedge. And in fact, especially if you're playing like a lot of topside offensive positions like side control or uh, mount. I mean, never underestimate the power of using your head as a wedge against your opponent's face to just like pry open access to the jaw. Yeah, a great example. That would also be Katagatame or arm triangle, you know, like from tight half guard passing, your head goes underneath their armpit. And then once you once you gain that inside position and you get behind their elbow, you know, you just keep climbing up and you bring your ear to their ear and all of a sudden you got a Katagatame if they're undisciplined with their elbow positioning. So definitely the head is also a great tool used to open up your opponent. And yeah, using using things like half guard pressure passing, body lock passing, head position is so, so important. Even in mount, like top pinning positions, you have to be aware of your head position because if your head is too high, it's so easy for your opponent to get inside position again, right? And that's that's what I think is a huge game changer is really looking at the positions that you struggle with. If you struggle with pinning opponents from different positions using different pressure passes and then reassess, where is my head during these movements? And if you do that, a lot of the time you can actually find answers that you were looking for. Absolutely. You know, I one thing I've kind of realized is that when people start jujitsu at the white belt level, they're usually only thinking about using their hands, right? They're usually not thinking about so much about what their feet are doing. And that's just, I think, a side effect of just kind of how we live our lives, right? Our, our use of our hands as human beings tends to be very deliberate, whereas the use of our feet, I mean, basically, we generally on a daily basis use them for walking. We're not really putting a lot of thought into where our feet are going. So I find when you've got white belts, often they're over-focused on what their hands are doing, but they forget to think about their legs. And that that's usually how you wind up passing them, right? They're very focused on you know, trying to grab you, but they're not really paying attention to the fact that their legs are out of position. And one of the big breakthroughs that people have as they get to like blue belt is they start to be able to coordinate their arms and their legs together to attack. And that's kind of, I think, the big breakthrough in terms of where your jujitsu starts becoming effective is learning to use all four of those limbs in concert. But if you really want to be good, once you get to a higher level like brown or black belt, you start to realize that you do have this fifth weapon, which is your head. And obviously, it's not the best compared to your arms or your legs, which have more utility in a fight. But it's still like a giant cinder block that you can use as a wedge. And you always want to be thinking and asking yourself in every position... Am I maximizing the use of all of these weapons, right? Like you generally don't want to have a situation where one of your your weapons is doing nothing. Like I and I would I would advise this especially from offensive positions but defensive as well. Always be thinking, you know, are both of my hands doing something useful right now? Are both of my legs doing something useful right now? Is my head doing something useful right now because what you'll probably find is there's a lot of positions where you realize oh i could actually be using my head right now and now i've got five weapons to play with instead of just four weapons to play with that to me is is kind of a mistake that a lot of more junior people make when it comes to you know just how to how to lock up their positions and the head especially from the top once you realize that this is a wedge you can use it's like one more way that you can pin your opponent down into position versus just using your arms and legs hundred percent. And yeah, for people who haven't yet started playing with the body lock pass, 
definitely look into that. I know Lachlan's got an instructional on it. Gordon mentions it in his guard passing DVD. That has really changed the way that I pass in Nogi. It's got to be my my favorite pass now. I mean, I used to kind of look at passing on the knees and being like, oh, this is kind of, I don't know, outdated or it's just, it's kind of like a, it's not really like a technical way to pass for whatever reason, I was I was all about just passing on the feet. And now I'm totally going both knees and passing from my knees and get, and just giving my opponent double inside position because the body lock is such a strong tool. And the and the way the reasons that are strong is because as you go through the process, you go through step by step applying wedges around your opponent's body. First wedge being actually securing the body lock. So once you lock your hands, that's closed wedges that prevents them from escaping their hips. And then when you suck them in and sprawl to the side, you're wedging behind their hamstring so that they can't lock you in the closed guard and you drive your head forward so that they can't, your head essentially is a wedge that prevents them from framing and making space and getting inside position back again. And then from there, taking your knee, blading it inwards and and uh, occupying the space in their hip, essentially putting them into a half guard and putting your ear to the other side of their body. And then from there, it's, it's basically tight half guard passing. Whether you choose to keep the body lock or not, it's so powerful. It's such an immobilizing type of guard pass. And that's why we're seeing like uh, one of the most recent examples would be Nick Rodriguez versus Yuri Samois. The, the, I mean, he just tuned him with that pass. If you, if you don't know what to do, if you don't know how to stop it or how to prevent it. it. It's such a horrible experience. And that's why I think that the seated butterfly guard, as we knew it 10, 15 years ago, where you would just go in and try and get like an over under is basically obsolete technology. At this point, you kind of have to off balance and grip fight a lot more before you can actually implement like a standard sumigayashi now in Nogi, just because body lock passing is such a, such a real threat but one thing I will say is I haven't had a lot of success with body locks in the gi, at least just against the seated butterfly guard, just because there is the the belt exposure allows your opponent to off balance you much easier. But still, the the head positioning, the sprawling movements and the the ways that you can funnel the half guard that you do in the body lock system all apply in the gi. That is definitely a, a style of pass that has just totally diversified my passing game and especially when you're doing no gi and yes things can be slippery it can be hard to hold your opponent it can be hard to pin them down sometimes this is definitely a pass i think worth investing time in yeah the body lock pass is an awesome example of the power of wedges because basically what you're doing it's one of those passes that works by basically immobilizing your opponent and it does that of course through the use of wedges and these types of passes are great because they give you as the attacker a little bit more wiggle room if you're doing a pass that's kind of more open and fluid if your opponent has the ability to move then they have more opportunities to counter to sweep to just generally take control of the situation whereas if you are using wedges to fully immobilize your opponent you make it much harder for them, no matter how good they are, you make it much, much harder for them to do anything about it. Like, I mean, if you take, you know, even someone who's just like decent at jujitsu 
and you put them in there with someone who's awesome at jujitsu. I mean, you know, usually the person who's awesome is going to win. But if the if the decent person is actually able to like wedge on all sides, so the really good person can't move. Like, if, even if you're really really good, it's very very hard to escape a position where you're totally wedged and boxed into place and you can't move. And that's really the the beauty of a lot of systems like pressure passing. Right? It, they're great for unathletic or smaller people or slower people or older older people because you are creating so many wedges around your opponent that you simply take away a lot of the dynamicness of jujitsu that they could use to escape or to get uh, to take control of the fight. So one of the things that I love about you know, these kinds of moves is if you just if you wedge from everywhere, you make it a lot easier to slow the other guy down to your level. Absolutely. Now I'm getting older. It's all about taking away movement and slowing people down now. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. One thing I would just advise on in general is if you are getting into a situation where you're frustrated because you can't hold a position properly, your opponent is always getting out or you're trying to do a submission, but your opponent is always able to spin out or it feels loose or they're able to get up. Normally, these problems happen because you're missing a wedge. Right. If you, for example, are trying to arm bar someone and they're always able to either pull their arm out or they're able to hitchhike or escape, that usually means you don't have a wedge on the far side and you need to cross your ankles under their leg or, or just do like a really tight pinch or something. Right. If you are going for some sort of leg entanglement and your opponent is always able to spin out of it, double trouble. Right. I mean, if you can control the far leg, you can prevent that or at least control that. So often if you are having a problem where your move is just too loose and your opponent is able to get out and you don't feel like you're able to hold them where you want them to be, usually the problem is a lack of a wedge. Agreed. Or if you're talking about arm bars, use the Kimura control, use a rotational, a rotational based control where you can place the shoulder joint under duress and by way of wedges control on the wrist wedge behind the elbow. Everything's about wedges these days. All the cool kids are doing it. <laughs> well, I think that was actually a pretty deep chat, Matt. Anything else you want to add on this fun topic of wedges? I'd love to hear from our listeners if there's other examples of wedges that they use in jujitsu that we haven't discussed. Yeah, I definitely want to hear from this. I mean, I think wedges are one of those underthought areas when it comes to the mechanics of the sport. So if anyone else has any interesting ideas or concepts around wedges, do let us know. I mean, these are fluid ideas, right? So if you've got anything insightful, happy to kind of add it to the nomenclature here at BJJ Mental Models. Awesome. So if we want to just quickly run down what we talked about today, the main mental models that we talked about, I mean, we talked about wedges, of course, one of the core mechanics of jujitsu. We've got a whole article on the website that documents these different core mechanics, frames being one of them. But wedges are kind of the flip side of that. A wedge is very similar to a frame. But the main difference is that with a wedge, you're using it as an offensive weapon. You're trying to restrict your opponent's movement, or you might be trying to pry something open. There's two different types of wedges. There's a blocking wedge, which is like a doorstop. It restricts movement. There's also a prying wedge, which is like a, a crowbar where you're trying to break open through your opponent's defenses. Really, the main difference between a wedge and a frame is a frame is a defensive tool. Normally, you're using frames to try to make space. Whereas a wedge is an offensive tool, and usually you're trying to use wedges to take away space. We talked about inside channel control. It's such a powerful strategy to try to get onto the inside, and when you do that, wedges can be part of what you use to maintain that position. 
Incidentally, if you're going for outside channel control, and a lot of leg entanglements now involve this, and even more traditional uh, guards sometimes require going around the outside, wedges are often part of what allow you to hold that position. Because if you're on the inside, you have a, a lot of direct access to your opponent's body and you're kind of out of their attack range. But on the outside, a lot of the time, the way that you hold that position is with wedges. We talked about kinetic chains. This is basically the idea that you can, if you plant, for example, the your feet or your arms against something, it creates a closed kinetic chain. And one of the ways that you can use wedges is by, say, crossing your ankles, grabbing your hands together. That creates a closed circuit, which really helps hold people in place. Common example of this is standard ashy, for example. That would generally be considered uh, an open circuit because your feet are not like connected together. If you can find a way to cross your feet, bring them together or triangle them. Same with your hands. It closes that circuit and leads to a lot more control. We talked about double trouble, the idea that if you really want to control someone and prevent their ability to rotate, say out of a leg lock or out of an arm bar, actually the way that you do that is by immobilizing the far side limb. So the far side arm, if you're going for an arm bar or the far side leg, if you're going for a leg entanglement. And the way that you often do that is you wedge against the far side. Think about how if you're going for an arm bar, you would cross your ankles to restrict motion on the far side arm. We talked about choking mechanics of jujitsu, which is really just using wedges around your opponent's neck. We talked about breaking mechanics, which is really just using wedges to make sure that your opponent's limb is immobilized and they can't rotate or release the pressure by using their body to, to, you know, to maneuver and make the submission weaker. And we talked about direct versus proxy control. Uh, Direct control is when I, you know, you grab part of someone's body. Proxy control is when you grab the fabric. And proxy control leads to all sorts of interesting wedge situations because if I like grab your fabric and I pull it in tight, it kind of creates a wedge on the far side. So it gives the person on the bottom very interesting ways to restrict motion in ways that you normally can't do without the gi, right? So I think that's part of the reason why it can be so hard to move freely when you're on top in the gi, because there's just so many ways for the guy on the bottom to make wedges. That was a really cool chat, Matt. What do you think? Pretty good. Didn't we already do a chat on wedges? I mean, we've talked about it all over the place in this 130 plus episode endeavor that we've done now. So they've come up before, but I don't think we've ever actually sat down and been like, Here's a wedge. Here's the concept. Here's what it means in practice. In fact, I don't know if anyone's ever really done that. This might be the longest conversation that's ever been had about wedges in Brazilian jiu-jitsu for all I know. Cool. Well, I mean, as always, if you want to learn more about these concepts that we talk about here on the show, if you want to contact us or if you want to get on our mailing list, go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's the mothership that links out to everything else. As I mentioned, there is a whole database of all of these concepts that we just discussed if you want further study. And of course, you can get in touch with us. You can pick up our merch. You can join our awesome mailing list. Lots of great stuff on there. So please do check it out. And worth also noting that really the The stuff that we talk about here on the public feed, this is just the tip of the iceberg. BJJ Mental Models ultimately is a premium service, which is powered by Patreon. If you want to join us there, you can go to patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. Ton of awesome stuff if you do that, like access to our our real kick-ass Discord community. Additionally, you get episodes early. If you're in one of the higher tiers, we have premium strategy courseware that we offer, and we also do narrate your roles. So if you want to know how this stuff applies, again, 
against your actual game. If you're a gold tier patron, you can get on our Patreon and we will take a look at your footage and we'll break it down based on the ideas that we talk about here on the show. We really try to make it a system that works for everybody. So there is a price point that'll work for everyone. The cheapest one is five bucks a month. I guarantee you that you can spend the five bucks a month on this versus, you know, getting a sandwich or something. You don't need that sandwich. What you really need is BJJ Mental Models Premium. So please do consider giving it a try. You can cancel it at any time. Again, it's like the, the minimum commitment is $5 a month. I do ask that you at least consider it. Patreon.com slash BJJ Mental Models. And thanks again to everyone out there for, for listening. Uh, again, we'll, this is a weekly thing, so we'll talk to you guys next week. Hope this was a useful chat. And if you've got any other feedback or comments, please do write in. And that's the end of this episode. See you guys later.